Welcome to the Irish Times Book Club podcast with author Michael Collins and myself, Martin Doyle, books editor of the Irish Times. This month's podcast is slightly different in that it was recorded earlier this month at the Innes Book Club Festival in County Clare. We hope you enjoy. Hello, um, good evening. I'd like to welcome you all to the Glore Theatre in Innes, County Clare for the recording of the March 2017 edition of the Irish Times Book Club podcast. We normally hold these interviews in the Irish Writer Centre in Dublin's Parnell Square, but it's great to bring it to the west of Ireland, so I'd like to say a big thank you to Paul and Emer and everyone involved in the Innes Book Club Festival for inviting us here to take part in this wonderful weekend. My name is Martin Doyle and I'm the Irish Times Books Editor. Uh, One of the perks of the job is that you get to champion writers whose work you admire. So tonight it's my privilege to be interviewing one of my favourite Irish authors, Michael Collins, who's author of 10 outstanding works of fiction, including The Keepers of Truth, which was Irish Novel of the Year in 2000, as well as being shortlisted for the Mann Booker Prize and the International Impact Dublin Literary Award. His latest novel, The Death of All Things Seen, was hailed by fellow author Owen McNamee in his Irish Times review last year as a dense, absorbing work shot through with brilliance and insight a formidable, demanding achievement. So, Michael, first of all, welcome to Ennis, and thank you for travelling all the way from your home in Indiana via France to be with us this evening. Home of the Vice President, Mike Pence. (laughs) 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 No one likes Mike Pence. (laughs) You are, however, something of a local boy born just down the road in Limerick. Can you tell us how you ended up in the United States? Sure. Um, So I'm from Limerick originally, and uh, I was there until I was about five, went up to Dublin, and liked Dublin, and um, but decided at the age of 12 or 13 that I wanted to go back to Limerick, I wanted to go back to the country, and so I went to St. Munchen's Boarding School, if anyone is familiar with that. Uh, It has a great tradition of uh, Niall Cusack, won the Boston Marathon, um, Frank O'Mara, world champion in the 1500 metres and a couple of other kind of grades, and then in rugby. So I kind of sequestered myself into, which I, which I think is a, a sort of an older Ireland. So Dublin was uh, progressive and uh, more modern. And uh, I wouldn't say I rejected it, but I liked my grandparents and I liked Limerick, so I came back for uh, a boarding school, which uh, was, uh, again, kind of, uh, it was a kind of harking back to an older type of Ireland and uh, a lot of training and uh, a lot of discipline. So corporal punishment was there at that stage. And then the 15, 16 mile runs per day, and then the rugby team were, were doing their stuff. And we also studied about, you know, five or six hours a, a day. I don't know if there's any study halls anymore. So uh, um, I think it was uh, slightly askew of a kind of normal Irish person in terms of looking toward the future. I saw a great benefit uh, when I was young in the, in the early 70s, mid-70s of uh, trying to retreat to uh, a sense of place and sense of community. And, if, and I left my parents, which I you know, love my parents, but uh, I liked the priests and I liked uh, religion and I liked discipline. So that um, got me into the world of, of running. And so I did that and then earned a, a scholarship to, to America and chose to go to uh, a place called Notre Dame, Notre Dame, they say in America, Notre Dame. <laughs> so that's, I went, say, arrived out there on a running scholarship. So mm-hmm. that's a kind of okay. bio. 
Um, it just struck me this weekend, um, I was struck by the similarity to Frank McCourt, another Limerick boy made good in the States, who was inspired to write by his experience of grinding poverty in Limerick. For him it was the 1930s and 40s, for you I think it was the 1970s, but the deprivation and neglect you witnessed had a big effect, I think, on your politics, on you as a writer perhaps? Well, again, um, I wouldn't quarrel with, with, with Frank and that, but I, I do think that uh, one of the problems with modernity and modernism is um, our sense of um, entitlement. And so when I went back to Limerick, I went back to look for a sense of depri deprivation and a sense of hardship and a sense of everything that you earned, you had to earn it. And uh, I don't know if you've, if you've ever run. I know, I think Sonia Sullivan might be here in the audience, but I mean... You know, it's just, uh, I mean, it's just you and the miles, and the miles have to be, you have to earn them, you know, 70, 80 miles. Uh, Frank O'Mara did it as well. So, um, you know, I, I kind of embraced that. I, I went back looking for a sense that even as a young person, uh, 12, 13, 14, before I went back to, to, uh, to Limerick, I thought, um, uh, again, the, the, the world had become kind of too complacent, uh, there was a lot of things just handed to you, and I remember from my grandfather who um, fought for Irish uh, freedom, and um, and had a lot of emotional problems. I mean, you know, toward the end of his life, uh, he he was uh, he um, was incontinent and um, uh, had Alzheimer's and had to be strapped into a chair. And as a young boy, I would go down there and see him beside uh, the fire. And he was strapped into the chair. They didn't take, take him to the city home uh, at that stage. And he just screamed about uh, what had to be done to form the Irish nation and the things that had to be done. And so I would go back to Dublin, and then Dublin seemed pleasant and nice. And it always kind of reflected upon me that, uh, and this is not to sound like an American, but your, your, your freedom and everything that you've gained has been gained by a lot of... Um, suffering and a lot of decisions and things that sometimes you aren't proud of or maybe you are proud of but even still at the end of your life if you kill people um well i'll tell you anyway here my mother will kill me for telling that story but um you know my grandfather they had lots of informers in the old days and they thought somebody in a house a man was an informer so they went and they decided to pull the family out and burn the house down and kill the man and my mother told me that earlier on, and it kind of struck me. But as my grandfather was dying, that was one of the stories that, that recurred again and again. And, you know, he was strapped into a chair, and this was one of the, the kind of great tragedies and also one of the things that had to be, had to be done to kind of break the conspiracy of, of, of what happened, what's happened to the Irish over the years of the informer. So I think those type of things um, affected me. And so when I went back and I ran, uh, the running was never, it was, it was about the running and it was about sport, but it also took me away from um, the regular Limerick. You know, so I left Dublin, then go down to Limerick, and then even Limerick is too kind of satisfying. As a runner, you know, on a Sunday and a Saturday, you go up into the hills on these 20 mile runs, and you're, you know, you're back into kind of almost famine dwellings. And you're up into places that people don't go. When you look down, you see the kind of daft and this gray, and you see your city. And so as a writer, before I was a writer, 
you kind of see the world as a kind of small little composite place that you've escaped from, and then you come back down to it, and then you go into a sitting room and you see your grandfather tied to a chair and there's a fire. And so you get this whole series of the kind of aperture of a lens of the bigness of something, the smallness, and then down to, to a room. So um, I think, uh, you know, running did that, did that for me because it took me into different, uh, different spaces psychologically and also physically. And it was maybe uh, when I went to America that uh, the kind of real sense of how running informs uh, the mind and gives you a kind of sociological perspective uh, started mm -hmm. to, 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 to kind of be born. When you started to think of yourself as I'm a writer or I'm, you know, in that kind of Irish tradition. Tell me how your career de developed then um, at Notre Dame. I think you had a falling out with uh, your athletics coach and then um, that sort of changed your, your path somewhat. Uh, yeah, um, you know, in the 70s you had John Tracy, you had Eamon Coughlin and then Sonia and you had a whole other series of runners in between that, you know, you leave your family behind, you go out and you're, you're glad of, you're not illegal, so you're, you're out there. But... Um, uh, I, not everyone goes out there just for athletics, and, and athletics was never the center of my existence. It was, it's, it's you know, I, I liked, I was um, All-Ireland champion and things like this, but it was informed by something else. When I arrived at the school and education was presented to me, after two years of just being the kind of greyhound for the school, I just thought, well, you know, I'll either be going back home um, or I can make a stand and, and just say I want to get an education here. And so I chose Notre Dame because it's, it's um, a Catholic university. And I always knew that there was going to be a certain breaking point, that, that athletics and teams wasn't my thing. And so my second year, I dropped out of school. And I, uh, so I was, at that stage, an illegal immigrant. I went down to Florida and was just folding bed sheets. I'd been down there for spring break and, and just uh, looking at that. And then the school brought me back because you know they didn't want the shame of a, a person who disappeared. And I spoke to and I spoke to a priest, and he said, "Like, what's wrong with you?" And he goes, "You know, you, you, we've given you everything here." And I said, "Well, you know, I've had athletic freedom and things like this, but uh, you know, I think I'm, a, I'm a, in the, my totality, I'm a different person." So I told you my kind of grandfather story and stuff like this. And so I said, I, "You know, I'm here, and I want a different experience." And um, this priest is uh, known, his, his name is Father Hesburgh, probably not known here, but he's, uh, um, you know, he, he's almost like the, the current pope, a very benevolent person. I didn't have to say very much to him. He just said to me, he goes, well, obviously you're in trouble. And if you can figure yourself out, and if one of the things is not running, then go to school here for free. So um, I think, you know, when people give gifts like that of, of freedom to somebody, uh, that was probably the moment where I, I thought, uh, now I really want to invest as much as I invested in running and stuff like this in education. Mm -hmm. So I continued to run, and the, even the first two years of the experience I had seen, I ran, so it's a very expensive school, and uh, pristine campus, maybe three miles wide and stuff like that. But every single day I would have to leave that, because you can't run, you know, like a, a rabbit just around and around and around. So you go into the old, what they call the rust belts. So it was old factories that were only five, ten years askew of their greatness. And in those first two years of running, I began to realize that I had a different experience than other people. You know, they're very violent areas. I mean, you've got the entire kind of collapse of an economy. And so the people who are there are either involved in drugs, there's violence, there's guns, and this, that, and the other. 
And with that kind of naivete of a, of a, a runner, and you're running five minutes a mile or so, you just kind of run through time and space and then inhabit, jump over barbed wire fences, stand in old uh, factories. And so when I was given this opportunity by the priest and said, just be a student, it wasn't just about books. It was then all of a sudden I, I went, well, I don't have to do this every single day, but what am I giving up? And then all of a sudden I realized, well, you know, now I can study, but studying on the page and studying on the books is one thing, but I've actually had this um, ulterior, or, or not ulterior, but other world, which was through the act of running. So that's when I kind of picked up running again, not to win races, not to try to go to the Olympics and things like this, but to use it as a sociological way, uh, almost like a person that, who doesn't have a camera, but who wants to go and experience things. So that was the, the, the kind of, before I ever rose, I went into this mode of I was seeing something that other people didn't have access to through, through running. So how did you become a writer? Then my last year of school, I was behind. Uh, you know, if you run, you're, you're behind in credits. You have to work in the summer and that. So I took a writing course. And I, 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 in some ways, I'm ashamed to say I didn't want to go back to Ireland. But I started giving myself mohawks, and I started doing all kinds of extra things as well. And, you know, like, what am I going to do? This is so, I went to school in, in 1983, and I was graduated in 87. So things were still fairly bad. You were leaving. You weren't going to go to an American school and then come back home. Your parents would be like, what? We just, we just got rid of you. What are you doing here? Uh, and so um, a teacher said to me, there's obviously something wrong with you. So I said, well, there is. Yeah. Uh, so he says, give me 10 things about why you don't want to go back to Ireland. And, you know, I just wrote down 10 ideas. And then he said, uh, can you contextualize those? Like, could you give me a specific story? So, you know, coursing and you know, some of these stories in the old days, if you had an old Reynolds 4L and you go with, I mean, my dad never did this, but I knew other dads that did. Everyone's packed into the car and the dogs are hungry and, you know, they've been not fed and they're kind of whining and they're, they're kind of bashing, ahead, bashing in the head in the back of a car. So, um, you know, I, I just kind of documented realism, but they weren't always exactly what I had experienced, but someone had experienced it. And um, that was 10 uh, complete stories. Mm -hmm. And the second story I ever wrote was uh, published in the, in the New Yorker, which was the First Blood. Mm -hmm. And I just thought, it really to be a writer, all you have to do is just um, be as honest as possible. I mean, I like the, the element of the lie. You know, you have to contextualize something. And in, 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 for instance, in that particular story, a boy uh, and a dog, and dogs who are after blood and the scent of blood, uh, you know, I, intuitively, I put it as a girl who was having her first period, and she's sort of the, the matriarch to some young kids, and she's in a car, and the dogs didn't get to, um, you know, they coursed, but they didn't get anything, so the muzzle was put back on them, and the father went into a pub and left them marooned in this little kind of island. So I had an intuitive sense that uh, truth and stuff like that has to be reconfigured slightly. Mm -hmm. But that was about the second story. But then uh, the rest of the stories, um, that was 19... Ninety-one mm -hmm. uh, with with uh, Jonathan Cape. They were all pretty much um, true things I had seen, and then just kind of uh, changed them. The end of the world was another one. My mother had always told me that there was a secret of Vatima, and the world was supposed to end on that day. And so you know, even 
early on, I was like, really? So you went to school on the day the world was supposed to end? Mm. Yes, really, really, you really went. And you know, my dad is always like in the paper. He's like, well, why does he ask these questions? Why, why, why doesn't he become an accountant? Why, why does he have to ask me these questions? And, but my mother, who's honest, would still say, well, you know, I believed it was the end of the world. And so, you know, I get a sense of manipulation, a sense of catholicism, not in a bad sense, but still that it was the end of the world and she was still going to go to school. So that was, you know, another story that was um, American uh, short story of the year, mm -hmm. again in 1991. So it was just, um, that's what it was. It was never a, a fantasy, it was never anything. It was more or less the absolute sense of truth and document documentation of place and getting it. But then also knowing that if you just told it the straight truth or the straight facts, mm -hmm. that's not truth, that's yeah. sort of just facts. Mm -hmm. So there has to be that, that, that kind of element of, of the twist of the, of the narrative. And so that's... Mm -hmm. Speaking of truth and facts, wasn't there um, a bit of uh, subterfuge in how you um, got your first book published? There was, yeah. <laughs> Would you like to share? Yeah, sure. Well, I have to say this, um, you know, the great runners and things like this know they're going to make it to the Olympics. They're, I mean, the, you know, they have a, a real sense of destiny. And, um, you know, I ran 404 in, in um, secondary school for the mile, which, you know, that, that's a fast time. I think Eamon Cochran, when he went there, was 409. So, I mean, you were there, but it was the rise of the Kenyans and stuff like this. So there wasn't that absolute truth that you could be a John Tracy or you could be anything. So I think that was one of the, also, the retreats that was that um, the world of sports had kind of changed. And so the aspirations that you might have had, and I've already said that, you know, I had other uh, senses of what, what running did for me. But I think that was also a kind of dead end that you were in a new kind of the super age of it, the Premier League and stuff like this. That what, if you were Billy Bremner, if you were, um, you know, whatever, Kevin Keegan back then, you know, you could do it some of the time and, and be great, but, but not that way. Um, so what was the question again? About your, <laughs> about how you oh, yeah, this right. book was so published. okay, the absolute truth, right? Mm. So I so I wrote these uh, I, these uh, two stories were in the New Yorker, and and then I, I um, you know I didn't know how to get published. I didn't know what to do, but I felt I had a good collection of stories, and um, then I approached various different people, and then they said, oh, these are so kind of joicy and so they're so old. I mean, who would care about them? Uh, but I cared about him. So I was going back on a, on a plane uh, to, to Ireland one time, and I saw buy a company off the shelf. And desktop publishing had just come around as well, so I was involved in that. So I produced a really nice-looking volume of, of stories, bought myself a um, Bond, Street, Bond Street company, and then coerced my sister to go uh, pass the book around and say this was, you know, and plus I had, you know, stories about my grandfather. So, I mean, English people especially were interested in the psyche of Irish people. So once it kind of got into the hands of, of uh, the London Times and that, uh, you know, they, they felt those stories were edgy. It was called the meat eaters. Um, and so they, all, they were like, this doesn't seem above board, but it also seems kind of unnerving. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think I had to, to, you know, I had to do that, that no one would have... Nobody in Ireland wanted to read about stories like that. And when the book, um, so, the first, so I made the book myself and then got English uh, people at the, the London Times interested in it. Mm -hmm. And then they said, but this is a fake. You know, I mean, it's just, just go, go do, go the, the legitimate channel. And that's when they introduced me to agents and said, you know, backtrack. So mm -hmm. I have, a, if anyone wants to buy it for like 5,000 hours, <laughs> uh, the original uh, self-published book that my sister went around with. So, but it did give me a sense that um, 
you know, I, the, I thought it would be published in Ireland. But the thing is that by 1991, 1992, Sinead O'Connor and the deconstruction of Ireland, and Ireland wanted to kind of jump into, into its kind of modern phase. My stories were set back almost to my grandfather, mm -hmm. and they were treating into this old Ireland. So it did have then, when it got to an agent, they began to realize that, you know, American Irish have a, a kind of nostalgia for, for Ireland. And even if it's dark and brooding and stuff like this, it still is commercially successful. Mm -hmm. So all of a sudden, there was you know a huge amount of money for a collection of short stories. And the same in England with Jonathan Cape, which I you know I'd never heard of Jonathan Cape before, but then kind of found out it's you know it's one of the premier things. Mm -hmm. But I, after that book came out, and then I had a novel which wasn't picked up in e either um, or in America, I began to realize that it was just uh, a kind of branding. Mm -hmm. now, they weren't really interested in the stories. They just thought that this would make a good Christmas gift in, Amer in, in, Amer in America. Yeah. Uh, but the absolute sense was to, to, even if the people didn't believe in it, I had to go through the vehicle of mm -hmm. self-publishing, mm -hmm. forcing my sister and saying, like, convincing her that we have to you know, get this book mm -hmm. published, we have to do this, that, and the other. And then it kind of took its course. And then even the course that it took was... Um, was successful, but it wasn't successful for you know the, the right reasons yeah. because the people who who read it just thought that it was a, a kind of a, mm -hmm. a, a marketing a period piece a, nostalgia a period piece. Yeah. How did you uh, make the transfer then to writing not about the Ireland of your grandfather's generation, right. but the Rust Belt, the kind of uh, the backdrop to where you studied in Indiana? Right. Okay. So I did the um, short stories. I mainly did a novel called uh, The Life and Times of a T-Boy, which I like a lot. And um, that wasn't published in America. At that stage, I was kind of shamed into, you know, I mean, you're a writer, you're not a writer, your book's published and that. So I have abandoned writing altogether. And I um, um, was good at maths. And so um, I got a job at Microsoft in the early years of 1993, 94. Mm -hmm. And I worked on the, mm -hmm. the um, Netscape mo mo mosaic that became Netscape. And there was huge money in that. Mm -hmm. And so I went out to uh, Seattle and I'd abandoned writing because, you know, you're talking about even today, I know you're saying Donald Ryan or somebody, you know, people are, are saying they can't make a living. Mm -hmm. You couldn't make a living back then either. Um, but when I got out to Microsoft, I, I just kind of realized that I was now, so I moved to America and I wrote about Ireland. Then I went from Chicago and I went out to Seattle and saw the kind of future. But then I saw the tragedy of the Rust Belt and everything that I'd left behind, which I, which I thought was disappearing. So I think for a writer, it's the act of remembrance. Mm -hmm. So as I worked in, I mean, you know, that environment was millions of dollars. I mean, that's, that's the kind of hyper-capitalism. And, uh, you know, if you can do it, you can get paid a fortune. And at that stage, that's when I, I reverted back to running first where I said, I want to starve myself. I want to go on 20-mile um, runs. Then 20 miles is not enough. I want to go on 40-mile runs. And Seattle is just this wilderness. And so I got up to crazy things of, of um, because I was getting a lot of money. I mean, I know people say, hmm. if you're getting a lot of money, why, why are you doing this? Uh, but 24-hour runs where I would just have pretty much the gear I have on now, mm -hmm. well, not the black shirt. I'd button it up a little bit. And then run around the, uh, run around the, around the volcano as a kind of protest that the kind of money that you can get for a certain type of work when the philosophical work and other things, which are just even pretty harder, because it's so hard to 
get your idea or your head around ideas. What do we want to be as a people? What's a sense of self? This, that, the other. Oh, here's $5,000. You know, here's $1,000 for that. Go into Microsoft. Oh, here's 300000 And just because that's not enough, there's, an, there's a stock option of a couple of million after four years. So, um, I, you know, in, in, in that sense, when I went out there, the urgency was either it's going to be money or it's going to be the sense of the storyteller. And, and that kind of sense of urgency uh, came, and that, that's how the American stories came. Mm -hmm. Because I'd gone to Microsoft, and then I kind of realized that it's going to be, there's a, there's a dead story, there's a dead history of America that's not documented, mm -hmm. it's not sexy, no one wants to speak about it, but I've experienced it and I've seen it. And it was a conscious decision to, to, to go back there. And that became The Keepers of Truth, which I think you wrote longhand yeah, after so hours my, in yeah, yeah. the Microsoft office. Yeah. Which so, I think you yeah, described as... Right like a Neanderthal on a spaceship. Yeah, I mean, you couldn't write, and if you typed anything out, uh, you'd be seen to do it. So you just have to spend, you know, 15, 16 hours a day there in this kind of valorous effort, because, you know, Bill Gates is a lunatic back then. He's there all the time. You can't go home before the boss goes home. Mm. So at that stage, I was like, well, I mean, I would just go running for 15, 18 miles, come back in a sense of exhaustion, not ease, crazy about, like, what am I doing? And then shorthand, uh, in in a meeting, I just said, um, uh, I forget the keeps the truth now, I've had a few drinks, but uh, it just began with a kind of eulogy to, um, we. oh yeah, we've made nothing in this town in over a decade. It's as though a plague befell our men. And that was in the midst of a meeting, and I wrote that down. And of course, I couldn't leave my job. I was married, and, and, and I had no kids at that stage. But I still said, you know, a couple of lines that almost is like a poem is not enough. I said, that genesis of something, I just, in the midst of this, do my day-to-day -day job. And I think writers sometimes have to, you know, you have to have the day job. You have to, I mean, the writing has to be pressured. It has to be that you have to do it. So, mm -hmm. you know, I could have uh, left at that stage. So I continued to do it. Um, the money was there, and I was making money, but then I was like, I need to be, make, put myself into this sense of deprivation. More or less, I, I think the biggest influence in my life would, would have been my grandfather, because he never made any money. Mm -hmm. But he was always a noble, uh, stately figure in my mind, so I had to try to return to stay where I was, but become a, a different person. So I wrote that by, by hand, and it was a manic effort. It was about three months uh, to write it. I sent it over. To the, to the agent in England, uh, or to the editor in England, and she just goes, and, and she's still my editor today, but she just goes, what are you writing that for? <laughs> like, you know, I was supposed to be writing Irish-based stories, so this was a complete uh, flip. Mm -hmm. I just wonder, is there another parallel between the running and the writing? Like, it struck me that perhaps, you know, writing a novel is almost like an, um, an extreme, being a novelist is almost like an extreme form of writing, like anyone can write a page or two right. pages, but to actually write 100,000 words requires a level of, um, 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 of stamina right. and single-mindedness yeah. that is unnatural almost. Um, what would your take on that be? Yeah, well, I, I think um, in the 10 books I've written and the book I'm currently writing, which I'm not writing, I write in my head, I, I think about four months. I mean, a good athlete, a boxer, the, you know, uh, Conor McGregor, and this, you know, you can only deprive yourself of everything for so long mm -hmm. before the kind of will and everything begins to kind of fall apart. And I think uh, as humans, I don't know, Jesus, uh, you know, went to the desert for 30 days. You know, he didn't go for like eight months, you know, yeah. or like this. I mean, it, it, it's, a, it's a point where 
you confront something, but you're not going to just fag yourself to the point that mm -hmm. nothing can get done. So all the books have been written in like a four-month period, and they're usually involved with running. In other words, it's a period of training. It's, mm -hmm. it's I'm writing the novel. Now, you know, beforehand, I'm writing passages and what I call like islands of fiction. Like this will definitely form mm -hmm. uh, a point in the book, and then here's another point, and then I have to write between those two. So, you know, it's configured. Mm -hmm. But then you have to say to yourself, if it can't be done in four months, and there are different writers who research and things like this, but for me, uh, it's a compression of, of uh, the kind of physical and the mental, and that's what I'm used to in, in running. Mm -hmm. A season is you know about four months of, uh, of kind of checking out uh, psychologically and then going into the physical sense. And so this, but this one uh, has both. It has the kind of psychological and it has the, the, mm -hmm. the physical, but it means that you go to work and you do your, so what I'm always surprised is how much work you can get done and no one knows that you've just basically, you're a zombie, you know, <laughs> you've kind of checked out and you're, you're just doing the physical and, mm -hmm. and you're doing your own craft. Presenteeism. Right. Tell me, um, when did you realize that it was actually a kind of loose form of trilogy that you're writing, um, Bookers of Truth, or sorry, Keepers of Truth, which uh, was shortlisted for the Booker, right. as we said, and then Lost Souls and the Resurrectionists. Right. Um, is there maybe the sense that you know everyone or every author is writing the same book somehow, or the, is is working through the same ideas or from right. the same source? Yeah. Well, that is a trilogy. I mean, when I wrote that book, I thought it was a great book, but it had no crime in it. So when I went up to New York, um, you know, they, they kept going, "Hey, guy, I heard that you just did the mar you know, just did the Everest marathon." Why don't you write an Esquire or GQ thing about fitness? And I was like, but I have this book. And they go, we read that book, but it's got no plot. It's got no center to it. So, you know, I was, um, I'd, I'd never written a detective story. So I went back with my tail between my legs, which was like, if you could just write about what we're sort of quasi talking about, um, how to sort yourself out through fitness and, you know, that, that that's your vehicle towards mm -hmm. kind of self-actualization, which I'm, no, I'm not interested in writing a book about that. But I went back, and but one of the editors, a woman, took me out, and she goes, "Mike, I could make you famous." He goes, "Just, just, God damn it, you know, just give me a story." Um, so I went back and read some romances, and then read some thrillers, and then put thriller into it. Mm -hmm. And that was the first time I ever probably studied a craft, you mm -hmm. know, studied a series of writers, and so I put uh, crime into it. Um, not as a sellout, but I just kind of realized, you know, if you're going to spend the time, you might as well mm -hmm. retrofit something. And so I went through three books like that mm -hmm. um, that were uh, successful. And then, you know, the books after that, I, I kind of rejected that. But in, the, in that period... So was it the sense that, you know, you're interested more in, in communicating ideas or exploring, you know, your thoughts on society or what have you, and then suspense, the suspense of a thriller was kind of like the sugar to... It had to be, yeah, yeah. I, I, mean, I do understand that who, who wants to read about my thoughts? I mean, they're, they're great thoughts, but uh, <laughs> uh, you have to, you know, I mean, I've sent you a bunch of articles that you I don't understand as well. You mm. said you have to understand them. Uh, so, I mean, you need to, you need to, I, I do understand that if you're going to look for an audience, I mean, there's expectations of, 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 of what you have to do. Mm -hmm. um, so, uh, you know, I, I, I did that for about three books because I, I didn't feel there was any compromise to it. And I also thought that the message of the Midwest and the, the kind of uh, sociological fallout, mm -hmm. uh, I think maybe I didn't do it for myself as much as, in the towns where after I left Microsoft and then went to work with ex-Soviet um, 
uh, soldiers from various different wars and things like this, that I felt that that somehow if I could change the agency of the story and put something in that got a larger readership, mm-hmm. it was never for, for me. It was to, to kind of bring light on a people and a, and a population mm-hmm. that sort of confounds politicians and, and, and confounds everything. So compromise was done, uh, not for me, mm-hmm. but I think that if you're going to be someplace and you tell the greater totality of the story, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, if you can find a vehicle. And I think also around that time, crime uh, gained a certain... Um, um, kind of gravitas, you know. Mm-hmm. When the when I the book, it was the first time they ever had a crime novel. If I don't consider it a crime novel, but there was a kind of murder at the heart of it, mm-hmm. and I can't say that that propelled it. But crime around that was trying to be philosophical and also also attract a readership. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, it's like a compromise and um, finding a genre that works for you. So, worked. Mm-hmm. Tell us a little about then. Now, suddenly, the, the people that you were writing about have come into the, the spotlight, um, perhaps in part because of the novels that you've written, but um, perhaps even more so because of the, the way politics has gone in the States with the rise of, of Donald Trump right. and the disaffection that he, that he feeds off, right. that his demagoguery feeds off. Right. What is your um, take on that? Right. Do, you, do you see that as an inevitable um, flowering or... Yeah. Well, you know, I'd say this is um, I never found disaffection in the American population that was, that was um, marginalized. I mean, I, so I've taught at community colleges and invested myself in small town communities at, at around $12,000 or whatever that's, 9,000 euro. Um, this is the annual income of the annual, people. Annual teaching. income of the people, yeah. yeah. Um, so I mean, they live in, in kind of houses that have been passed on and trailers and things like this. I never found any racism. I never found any sense of even them. They knew the factories had closed. They knew there was inevitability about that. And they blamed nobody. So I was always trying to blame. You know, I was more of the, the, the kind of polemic of like, let's explain it. Let's try, try to figure it out. They, ne- they never were. Um, but I think their story needed to be told. What I was really surprised was with the Trump thing is either I didn't read them or if you get a real uh, kind of demagogue or a, a kind of, I can't say he's a Hitlerite, but if you get somebody who really can kind of, I don't even know if this was a latent fear or sadness or anger in these people, but it, it kind of flabbergasted me that he spoke to those people and then things I'd never heard them say, uh, they began to say, well, this is why my life is like this. Uh, because, you know, I, in, I, you know, I had a decent amount of money. I, said to people, I would say to people, propositions like this, here's $2,000, go to California. I don't want to see you suffer. I mean, if you need startup cash to go, no, I don't want to, I would never go, I would never do this, that, and the other. And then these same type of people, when he came along, uh, started saying, my life's crap, my life's mm-hmm. this, and it's because of immigrants, and it's because of China, and it's because of bad trade deals. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I've spent the last year, I, mean, I knew he was going to become president, but then I was like, I've worked with you, I've dealt with you, I've been honest with you. How could you possibly buy into uh, a narrative that you don't really believe in? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, I'm still there now managing students and, and dealing with people, and they're starting to, it's starting to smolder and settle again. Mm-hmm. That um, I think it was just that somebody spoke to them. You know, in other words, the voice goes out to 
California and New York and California and New York and it kind of bypasses them. So whatever the message is, mm -hmm. if anyone says, you're this, you're that, you were robbed, you were this, yeah. you know, your destiny was stolen from mm -hmm. you, someone's at least speaking to them. Mm -hmm. And they never listen. I mean, they never read the newspaper. They're not picking up the mm -hmm. Irish Times or the, the, you know, any of this type of stuff. They just heard little snippets. Mm -hmm. And even if you ask them, explain this or rhetorically how this really feeds into what you think. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter. He's, he's speaking to me. Given the way the tectonic plates have shifted, does that challenge you as a writer to kind of what your next project should right. be when, when the world is changing in maybe a more dramatic way than anything you might imagine? Yeah. Well, I will say that when I went out to Microsoft, I was absolutely fascinated by that. I, I did think the future was not with reform, not with social reform, that people will confound you, people will have babies, people will do, you know, babies in terms of horrible circumstances and continue to live in, in, in failure. And again, I don't want to say like failure because I think it's failure, but ostensibly, you can't be a social engineer of to fix problems. And so when I was at Microsoft, the kind of pristine campus, decentralized sense of, uh, you know, no center to anything, uh, it just seemed to be uh, a kind of... Um, the new order, mm -hmm. which was the sense of self. If you were in this meritocracy, if you could perform at a high level, you were guaranteed millions, and this is where it was. And there's not something of like, oh, I don't have this, and I've got too many children, and I need money, and I need grants, this, that, and the other. I'm, I, you know, I'm more socialistic and, and, and sympathetic that you can't save everybody, and you have to, you're obliged to do it. So mm -hmm. I saw that. So I have to admit that what I really wanted to do was write a kind of futurist, novel, but I didn't understand uh, Microsoft, I didn't understand you know, mm -hmm. that reality. Whereas with the Donald Trump, it's given me a huge freedom in terms of, I wouldn't say I'm turning my back on those people, but I look at the, the article I wrote for you, I think it's, you know, it's the red dwarf of like a kind of anger or a, a history that was never absolutely closed. Mm -hmm. So he's coming along and he's going to not get jobs, not do anything. Mm -hmm. So when, once he's gone, there's no next person that says, well, he didn't get the factories, but I'll get the factories. Mm -hmm. It will be a dead population of people. So my interests have now moved into, uh, you know, we're on the West Coast. But I was there at Microsoft. We're on the West Coast. It's pristine. It's eco-conscious. It's kind of larger uh, ideas. And the American experiences go West. So I thought, it's just going to go up. And so mm -hmm. there's Elon Musk. And, you know, all those kind of things now are... We're not dealing with any of this stuff. We're not dealing with Trump. We're leaving the planet. Mm. Um, so um, the next novel is a futurist, futurist novel, uh, kind of based upon him and also that it's not that I'm rejecting the people and they can't be saved, but I think it's the last salvo Brexit, um, uh, the Donald Trump phenomenon as well. There can mm -hmm. be no political mm -hmm. unrest because mm -hmm. you have the people who are coming to save it and mm -hmm. they're not going to be able to save it. And the other people are so disinterested, and they've already got the GPS uh, cars, the Google cars. And the, the future's already decided. Yeah. Um, so. You wrote a great essay for the Irish Times website um, yesterday, which is titled, we titled This United States, in which you refer to Bob Geldof's song, I Don't Like Mondays, and describing it as having an Irish outsider's sensibility, keenly registering an American discontent that had no accessible political language. Um, is that how you see your own role as an artist? Well, when I wrote that, you know, the first time when I went out to America, they were like, you must hate Protestants. You must hate this. You know, I arrived at Notre Dame, a Catholic school. Mm -hmm. So uh, 
every and every, and on the ABC, NBC, CBS, Ireland was just uh, at, in religious war. So any whatever bomb went off or whatever killing, it will be, if not headline news, it will be one of the stories. Mm -hmm. And as I kind of ran around the Midwest and saw the ferocious violence, and like you know, go back to the school, um, and then you know, see on the news, uh, two people killed, stabbed, this, mm -hmm. that, and the other. I always thought to them. I mean, this place is in total yeah. disarray. This is a civil war, mm -hmm. but it's undeclared. Yeah. And so I remember in the boarding school hearing that kind of register of, I don't like Mondays. And even, you know, uh, you 2 as well. Uh, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. I, mean, I think when they first went over there in that kind of naive sense of things like this, they began to realize, you know, mm -hmm. things aren't exactly right in America. Mm -hmm. I think the Bob yelled out that I don't like Mondays was that sense of someone who showed up on a Monday uh, with no job and was going to do the American, as I say in, in that piece, do the American narrative was be the psycho, go kill somebody. Mm -hmm. But you couldn't uh, read a manifesto, you couldn't read a speech and say I have no job. So mm -hmm. uh, that that's my kind of main thesis about America is even though it's democratic and it's got political freedoms, there's very little thing that you can, you can't politicize anything. Every failure is an absolute personal failure. You can't contextualize it into anything else. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's, in my early days, I, if someone said to me, like, why did I want to be uh, the American writer? I was c confounded with that sense of the unions were gone, everything was disbanded, and lots of people that you meant went, they would say, well, I wasn't uh, good enough you know, to pay, be paid $18 an hour to screw something in in Detroit, and the unions screwed us, and all those goddamn uh, mafia guys and things like this. So I was like, well, well, what would have been a good uh, thing? $4 an hour, $3 an hour? Uh, you know, they'd be like, what are you talking about, guy? And, you know, and they would just get drunk and drugs and, and killings. So there's no political context to it. So I've always been confounded when I run through failure, that especially um, the American experience anyway. It had no political context. Mm -hmm. And I said, that's the kind of Bob Geldof uh, mm -hmm. feeling. And I think that's, that's the outsider's perspective. Uh, especially the Irish, mm -hmm. and say so you too would be a seminal influence on my as well in, in, in lines uh, that, that seem to capture and register mm -hmm. no happiness, uh, no political context, and, and a kind of loss of, of voice. Mm -hmm. I remember the, the last time we spoke um, after um, Midnight in the Perfect Life, your last but one novel, and I sense quite a degree of frustration um, in you as in the way that the, the publishing industry was set up, the kind of um, the very traditional expectation that every novel would have a beginning, a middle, and an right, end. Right, right. Had to follow a certain kind of tell a story, right. follow a certain pattern, and that for you was like a, a straitjacket. I sensed, and you know, you're maybe kind of wondering, did you have a future um, as a writer at all, yeah. despite all the success right. that you'd had? Well, you know, I mean, again, in major uh, city or major countries like America, it has to have. I mean, that's the agency was give me murder, give me this. You've got something to say, but but sell it in the package, and um, you know at a certain point, I think the package can sometimes you can be on a stage talking about who did it, and I didn't know he did it, and I was really flabbergasted. And you're like Jesus Christ! I mean, mm. you know, this is what you're reading for the, the the sense of. I mean, I always think of literature as something different, other. If it's a film, if it's a, another media, it has a suspense, it has narrative. I mean, I've always approached literature. I, mean, I don't think you read James Joyce for like you know. What happened next? What happened next, mm -hmm. or, or uh, Beckett and things like this. It is uh, the kind of proposition of, of, of what's been talked about, and, and uh, open endedness is, is fine. 
um, I mean, you know, to kind of resurrect myself, you know, I applied to Oxford and got into Oxford and I did a kind of theory, uh, postmodern theory, mm -hmm. to kind of just psychologically kind of say, I'm on the right track, you know, like to reject the, the, um, the thriller. And again, there's nothing wrong with the thriller, but mm -hmm. in terms of my own philosophical sense of investigation, I still think that books that then begin to lose the narrative strain and become more ideas and people leave and say, I remember this, I remember that, but I don't understand the whole story. It's like politics, it's like everything in the world. We get bits and pieces of, of different things. Mm -hmm. So uh, I would say I just came back, and I don't mean to be like, I just came back from France, uh, because I'm going back to work on Monday. But I mean, in places like France and things like this, they're much more tolerant. There's a lot of Irish writers mm -hmm. who are relatively famous, or you know, they get on the big shows there, mm -hmm. that, um, that, that don't adhere to kind of what New, what London and what New York wants, and they're much more tolerant of uh, the, the of novel of, of ideas. Yeah. So uh, I, that's why you know I've always worked the day job and said I'm not going to go out and say to people you know you're not reading my books, you're an idiot, mm -hmm. and if you you know you shouldn't be reading that, you shouldn't be, but you should be reading me. Mm -hmm. I mean I'm not going to force that on on other people, but. I was here with three weeks ago with you. We met in, in Dublin, and I saw Donald Ryan's going back to work. I, I do sometimes think that it's a privilege to get a readership, and if you're going to struggle, not personally, personally, and then you want to you want to be the kind of um, heroic figure, and, the, and you want to be Sisyphus, and you want to you know take that rock up the hill every single day and bring it back down, and there seems to be no beginning, middle, and end to it. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, don't demonize the people. Just just just. Uh, find the way to do that. And a lot of times that, that means that you work a, a nine to five and you're not recognized mm -hmm. and the books become uh, not published by major publishers and things like this. And I, I, but I still, think I, I still think that's the same thing with my kids, uh, four kids and that. I kind of go, don't chase uh, the success. I mean, it's, it's always going to be about you. You mm -hmm. know, when I got into the long distance running into the 24-hour races and things like this, there's no money to be made in that. We, I mean, we work harder, we go longer than professional footballers and stuff like that, mm -hmm. and it's just an old trophy. You know, you're in uh, <laughs> Gibraltar, and you know, I was, I don't know, 46 years of age, five years ago or so, or six years, four or five years ago, and you know, uh, won a bronze medal, and it's like, here's a trophy, get back in a plane uh, mm -hmm. from, on you know, Saturday, run 62 miles, 100 kilometers, and be back uh, working on a Monday. You know, I mean, anyone else would, think that that you know, deserves something, you know, yeah. money or monetary or things like this. Mm -hmm. So I just, um, so I don't, again, look at it in, in a bad sense. Sometimes I think it, what it does is it steals you in terms of there is no actually monetary reward and all the things that you do are gonna be about uh, a sense of, of self. Mm -hmm. The books are gonna be written. It would be nice if more people read them. It would be nice if your parents don't have to kind of go, well, he's still, he's still writing, you know, he's <laughs> just, uh, he's writing nothing you'd wanna read. Uh, <laughs> Speaking of which, would you like to read a short passage from The Death of All Things Seen? Well, I wouldn't, but I will. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> the, uh, okay, I had, to, I had to actually steal my own book up front here to do it. All right, I'll give you a sense if I can read just this uh, two pages. <clears throat> uh, this little section is the beginning of uh, the new novel, and what I like is the sense of... Um, well, I use running again in that kind of documentary sense of I want to see something, place, people, and that whole kind of montage of different things. So this is a woman who uh, came of age in the 50s in the kind of madman mad world, so she's a secretary. 
she's got a head secretary, but there's people who do shorthand, and then once they do the shorthand, it goes into the vacuum tubes and it's sent down to the typing pool. So this thing is called the death of all things seen, because I, I do think that a sense of, of um, place and physicality uh, kind of meant something. I don't know if that makes any sense, right? That, that you can see the process, even the, the, the um, uh, boss that she had, he would walk back and forth and he's punctuating his ideas, he would stand in light, have a moment of enlightenment, then move into shadows and move this, that. So she saw there was a kind of, um, if you were gonna be able to plot it, the way he wrote a speech was in, in, in time and space. Anyway, she's, she's uh, on the way to committing suicide and she's kind of reflecting on America. <clears throat> Helen felt the dull ache of her insides. Shouldn't she turn now and head toward Dr. Martians, face the coming realities? And yet she didn't, circling again her former life, passing the burnished brass revolving door of her old office building, casting back to a time before Mr. Fellman's suicide, realigning life again, finding her way, her way to earlier memories. She tried to find that essential old happiness to inhabit an early freedom as a newly liberated woman of the late 60s. She had so, such fond memories, rising in the morning in the hustle to get Norman to the school bus on time, leaving the utilitarian suburb of a modest house in a car financed on affordable down payments for the throng of the commuter train platform. She remembered it all with absolute clarity, parking her car amidst the gleam of other new cars receding in the push of life, venturing toward the stencil ceiling and fresco beyond the revolving door of her office building. Even now she could see it in her mind's eye, the gold-leaf topaz and onyx, Tiffany mosaic in the building's lobby, the entire pageant of Midwestern history captured in a series of stylized mosaics, the collective first landings rendered in a two-dimensional flatness suggesting an uncomplicated arrangement of bringing a Christian God to natives, a sharing of gifts between frocked French missionaries, Bibles in hands, with olive skins natives in ceremonial headdress, offering a peace pipe at some appointed canoe portage. No matter the real history, the ravages of smallpox and measles, the internment of the natives on the Trail of Tears, and yet, in the mosaic's audacious simplicity, set before the people as artifact, it has served as a stylized myth of life, as a system of exchanges, of deals, where the only underlying principle was the decorum and manner of how one negotiated. It was in these early first landings, these ceremonial exchanges, that the glory of a new world was founded, from a humble barter of animal pelts to the glorious reach of skyscrapers in a span of mere centuries. No single history could account for such progress. It was all too vastly complicated and yet so manifestly real and literal. The inner chamber of the lobby, a crypt holding the sacred transitional, tra sorry, transactional truth of Adam Smith's wealth of nations. It had all come together so beautifully once upon a time, the perfect inning the improbable no-hitter of American dominance and all that had coincided with her youth. So, it's... Um, right. Right. Right.
stumble, stumble over the words. You know, I could tell you all the syndromes I have. <laughs> uh, but anyway, it would be a sense of, I think a run would, if someone said to me, what's a run like? It's a sense of, um, you know, the history. And when you see something and you go at a certain pace, uh, then you see the story behind it and the story behind it. And, uh, you know, the most uh, recent adventure that I had that Martin was uh, gracious enough to sponsor was I did the uh, 19, uh, sorry, 1847 uh, retracing of 100,000 Irish who, were, who couldn't get into New York or into America and were sent uh, to Canada because of his uh, British holding and arrived at Gros Seal uh, in, the, in the, what we call the coffin ships and then traversed the St. Lawrence, either walking or in barges. And um, I was up with my daughter learning uh, French and I said, I have to walk it, I have to see it to understand it. Then I read all the history books and various different things about it. Um, and then I approached Martin and said, um, you know, I'd like to write a series of articles, I don't know what I'm gonna see on it. But um, as I began to, to, to do that, so you can, you can hug that uh, passage right beside the St. Lawrence from Gros Seal down to Toronto, 600 miles, so it's about a marathon a day. And again, kind of psychologically, as an athlete or as something you can process, well, I can run a marathon today, that, that's fine, I can and manage it and still kind of think about various different things. And every, I think 15 or 16 kilometers, when just as I was beginning to fag with a little bit of tiredness and I wanted to drink and I wanted food, I always came across um, a statue that the entire history of how we lived and how we processed life was failure or a sense of sadness or a sense of I want to give up, that there's this moment of, of uh, religion to kind of resurrect you. And, um, you know, and I, 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 I even think as I moved through uh, Chicago, as I moved through these various different places in, in South Bend and, and the factories, that somehow there was a cafe where people would aggregate and come together. There was always points of community, of community and things like this, even though they're in, in, in Derry. In and that's, that's probably the kind of saddest thing now with the Donald Trump phenomenon and things like this, is like, where do we find respite? Where do we find some place where we can uh, you know, mm -hmm. come together? So you know, nobody was doing those roles, no one was doing anything, but it was myself, my daughter, and a, a neighbor of mine uh, drove the, the car. And mm -hmm. again, you just kind of arrive, and even they would kind of feel it when you arrive at these, it's just kind of, uh, kind of old passage of time and place, mm -hmm. because you have to drive the car with that kind of processional yeah. slowness. Um, and I think that's... So that's, it's almost like a pilgrimage route and kind of... A pilgrimage route. And so that's the thing, a pilgrimage is, uh, brings you to points of reflection. Mm -hmm. And that's probably my greatest uh, fear in, in terms of moving toward the new novels is, is uh, and having gone out to Microsoft, when that is taken away from you and there's no point of reflection, when there's no point of stopping, when there's no community, mm -hmm. uh, you know, what, what's, what is going to happen to us? Mm -hmm. Uh, where that's always, it, it's, it's always registered in every place I've gone. But when I went out to Microsoft, I just started doing these runs in the woods where the, my biggest fear at Microsoft in 1993 was the cougar. You know, as I went over in the mountains, it said, beware of cougars. I said, cougar? I mean, it's 1993. You know, it wasn't about like riots, this, yeah. that, and the other. It was, you know, it was, it was the cougar might eat you. Which or just Bill seemed, Gates saying you leave before him. Yeah, yeah, or, or Bill, yeah, Bill Gates. I don't know which is worse. Probably Bill Gates. Yeah, but again, even he had that sense of, you know, 
no, no end, no this, no that, the other. Mm -hmm. you know, at, the, at the end, he dropped out and he gave it all away. But I don't think you can process something without stopping and reflecting and thinking. Mm -hmm. And again, the later novels are not crime-based or not that. They're about issues of uh, time. So the futuristic novel and things is, is about the extension of time. How much will we wait? Where will we stop? Where's the way stations to think mm -hmm. about uh, things? And, uh, and again, it's, uh, you know, it's one of those novels we have to think, kind of go, no one's going to read that, so it's going to have to be a father and his daughter. Is, you know, they're going to have to put some type of um, story with that. Sure. But the real underlying thing is, is probably time and, time and space for, okay. for me. All right. Well, I think we've reached one of those moments when we have to stop and reflect. Uh, right. So um, I'd like to thank Michael for a um, fascinating conversation. Thank you. And thanks again to um, Michael and Emer and the Innes Book Club Festival for hosting the Irish Times Book Club here and Glower. Um, thank you all especially for coming and I'm now going to throw it open to the audience for any questions for Michael. I'd like to ask Michael, that, uh, does he bring a tape recorder with him on his runs? Uh, because I, I noticed I have a, I have a daughter that uh, would run marathons and when she would have about 15 kilometers done, she became a different person. As I cycled beside her, I was able to discover um, that there was a new person started to emerge at him after about 15k. <laughs> and I'm, I was just wondering, have you written from that space? I, I think, you know, all the books actually, when I said that I write and I run, and I put myself in that sense of um, deprivation. So, um, again, I want to write about it, but I, do, I would like to say to people, in your own daily life, where do you arrive at a point of uh, kind of urgency and um, exhaustion where I think something else happens. It doesn't have to be that you're going to be a writer, but it's a point of, I mean, you know, my parents always tell me about going to Benediction, going, you know, in, in Limerick, all kinds of different things that you would go out at nine and ten at night and then Lent. I mean, Lent, I, mean, I don't know what people do for Lent anymore, but I mean, people did uh, uh, just drink the tea at the end of the day and they went through that period of, of um, fasting and things like this. So, yeah, I, I, you know, I, I crave it. I mean, if someone says to me, you must love running, I mean, because you want to stay fit. I mean, no. I mean, I think, again, when you realize you weren't going to the Olympics, running then became a conduit to, to, to a kind of a, a greater sense of, of self. And again, not in the kind of new agey sense of self, but it just, uh, I think it just connected with what, what uh, people have done for a long time. I mean, mm -hmm. people age. I remember, you know, my grandfather was just, uh, you didn't eat bread, butter, and jam. You either ate bread and butter or bread and jam. And, you know, he was down to these kind of uh, various different things and missing meals and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. so, it was, so that would be my kind of advocacy for, uh, not for just writing a novel, but just for kind of a sense of, of happiness or self. Okay, thank you. Anyone else? Michael, I just wanted to ask you about, um, like, the essence of you. What, what about you... Do you like like about being Irish? What do you like about being Irish? Um, I'm Irish. Um, you know, we were chatting before we came out that when I was uh, younger, my God, it was great, must be great aunt was in the Little Sisters of the Poor, 
very saintly woman, also a big time liar, uh, who said that we were related to Michael Collins. So, uh, you know, as I grew, when I grew up, I, I, I always thought a, a person who kind of lives under the radar and who's a, a kind of political activist or uh, someone who's not interested in the, in the status quo and wants to change uh, something like that. I think in those early years, uh, I was interested in, in um, that kind of quietness and, and almost the, um, I, I think, you know, being a writer, I mean, you're not, no one's famous. I mean, if you write a movie or you do something, people will know you. I mean, no one's going to know me and stuff like this. So to be the kind of instigator, but the kind of shadow uh, shadow figure. So um, I like that, um, that, that notion of um, the infiltrator. And I think it's, uh, if someone said to me, you know, who, my, he, my grandfather, also the kind of Michael Collins figure. You know, it's kind of a grassroots thing. There was no kind of massive revolution. It just kind of slowly seeped up as opposed to, you know, the polemic speeches and, and you know, the, the Daniel O'Connell or whatever, you know, the, the, the mass marches and people see it. This mm -hmm. thing kind of rose up in an organic sense. So I think um, a sense of self and uh, that, 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 that comes up through yourself. I'm, I'm more interested in that. Yeah. Okay, um, I get the sense that we're running over time, so I think I'll have to call a halt there. Um, thank you all again. Thank you very much. Thank you, Michael. Thanks. Thanks. Thanks You've been listening to the Irish Times Book Club podcast, an interview with author Michael Collins by myself, Martin Doyle, books editor of the Irish Times. If you've enjoyed this, perhaps you might care to have a look at irishtimes.com forward slash book club, where there is a range of articles by Michael and a number of other writers and his editor and academics discussing his work.